Our guest today is Dr. George Gordon, who is Emeritus Minister of Congregational Care at Country Club Christian Church, having served the congregation for many years. Dr. Gordon, welcome to Heart and Mind. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. Good to be here. Well, George, it's great to have you. Um, you led some classes recently on Monday nights. The title of your presentation was Self-Observation as Aid to Spiritual Growth, <laughs> subtitled, what was it, More Than Navel-Gazing? Yes. Yeah, More Than Navel-Gazing. So I guess what I'm wondering is could you briefly describe just what you mean by self-observation or the inner self, which was the other term you used? Sure. I would, it would be helpful for me to explain how I become, became acquainted with the concept and the term itself. I became acquainted with the Enneagram through contact with a local psychiatrist who mentioned it to me back in 1999. And I was completely unfamiliar with it, and she asked me to read a copy of Helen Palmer's first book that came out in 88 uh, on personality types. And I found it very helpful because when I came across my own type, I noticed that my dreams became so uh, calm and pleasant. Issues in my life were, would pass by in the dreams and I would refrain from getting embroiled in them as I usually did in life. So I was captivated. Uh, I decided to attend Helen Palmer's teaching or training program in the Enneagram the following summer. Uh, she is the founder of the narrative Enneagram tradition along with David Daniels who was a psychiatrist on the medical staff of Stanford. And each session that Helen would lead, she would guide us through an exercise. After becoming quieted, she would ask us to move our attention from the place at first at the center of the room, then to the far wall. And she'd give us a few seconds or perhaps a minute between each of these suggestions or invitations. Uh, then to book reading distance, and then to inside ourselves, down close to the navel, navel in the abdomen, which is a sacred place in many traditions. Some refer to it as the Hara or the Dantian. I refer to it as the place where possibly God first touched us in creation, uh, creating us in our mother's womb. And then, after that exercise, and just breathing and being in that spot, she might ask us to do something else with our attention, and that is to bring a thought into our mind, any type of thought, two and two is four, or whatever, something probably logical, and then after, again, a brief period, she would invite us to move our mental picture or focus to a plan, something we might be planning in the next day, the next week, the next month, and keep our focus on that plan 
for again a brief period of time. Then she would invite us to move our attention to a memory and follow the same path there. And then she would invite us to turn to a fantasy and uh, also as we're in the midst of focusing upon the fantasy, to notice our emotional reactions to what might be going on, to notice our physical sensations. And then she would gradually bring us back to the present in the room, and she would ask us, were all of you able to notice the difference between where your attention was placed? And usually everyone was able to do so, and she would ask, do you know how you did that? How are you able to notice the difference between your various foci of attention? And there would be stumbling responses uh, on the part of many, and then she would give her answer, and that is, because there are two of us inside each of us. The one part is the operant or operating self. The other is the observing self. Hmm. And the observing self's simple function is just to observe. Not to judge, but to discern discern and distinguish between various kinds of internal experiences. It's something like, I would say, uh, many people, when you talk about their internal experience, just say their thought processes. Well, that would be comparable in the field of medicine if somebody asked, what's your difficulty? If they responded, I'm simply, well, I'm just not feeling well, uh, that doesn't add much clarity to the situation. And so when we're trying to emotionally grow or overcome some tendencies that cause difficulty in our relationships with ourselves, others, or uh, ultimate reality or God, it's helpful to be able to be a bit more specific about what's going on inside of us. And we use the inner observer to distinguish between the various aspects of that's which, that which we notice with the observer going on inside of us. So one thing that occurs to me is lots and lots of discussion these days about how busy life has gotten. And I read recently that it's even a new answer to the question, so how are you doing? Nobody used to would have said busy because that doesn't really answer the question of how are you doing, but that's a new answer that people actually give to the question of, so how, how are you doing? Oh, man, just really busy. I, I'm wondering if this busyness on the operating level has in some ways kept us from being more observant? That's very possible, uh, Mike, and probably a good observation. The busyness uh, can help us avoid using the inner observer to look more deeply at 
uh, what is prompting us to be so busily involved in a variety of external things. Mm -hmm. Because the looking more deeply inside and discerning what's going on can be uncomfortable in mm -hmm. terms of fears might, we might discover fears, we might experience shame, we can experience embarrassment, mm -hmm. we can experience bafflement or puzzlement, right. and, and that's, we wouldn't describe many of those as pleasant. One of the optimistic parts that most of us don't recognize is we can also uh, if we stick with the process, discover some joys there too. But yeah, I want to come back to that. I, okay. You know, I've, I've, this is my outer observer. Yes, okay. <laughs> I have noticed that in waiting rooms, whether it's to get your oil changed or to be at a doctor's visit, that of course there's not much human contact in the, or interaction. We're all in the waiting room, we're scattered around, we skip a chair in between people. And everybody gets their phone out. Or they used to get a magazine out, but now they get their phone out. I, I wonder, you know, if the inner observer were taken seriously, it might be a good time to, a good chance to, if you're getting your checkup, for instance, or with the coronavirus scare, you know, maybe the uh, operating server operator needs to kind of take a break so that the observant self says, I wonder if I'm f afraid about my health. I wonder about my own mortality even. Even if I'm fine and going to live, I'm just getting a flu shot as a precaution, whatever. Uh, I, it seems like the observant self is a way to take stock that rarely happens in our society. Would you agree with that? or I, I would agree, yes, very much so. Uh, we are so conditioned to use our personality type, which is actually a coping strategy. It was developed early in childhood before uh, cognition even became even was beginning to develop, much less become completely developed, um, because the, the, the young child at some unconscious level is experiencing a lack hmm. of something in life that feels to be vital to them, mm -hmm. usually in their relationships, and because of their, each child's particularly hard wiring, and mm -hmm. uh, all the kids are unique. Every pregnant woman will tell you that even with multiple children with the same genes, they're different. So this interplay between uh, our nature or hard wiring and our early experience, there can be some uh, lackings there. And those lackings are experienced uh, as detrimental to a, a fulfilling life experience at that time. Mm. And so the inner being, uh, as again, unconsciously looks for uh, things that just work, 
to fulfill this lack. Mm -hmm. And uh, with the minimal tools that a young child would have, uh, if it works, there's not a lot of evaluation of whether it's good or bad. Mm -hmm. It works. It relieves my anxiety mm -hmm. uh, for a moment. And so that uh, coping mechanism becomes our, that develops, becomes our main strategy. Mm -hmm. And because it worked in childhood, we tend to apply it in a variety of situations far beyond what we were in in early life. Mm -hmm. And that blocks us from being aware of many aspects of our adult situation. Yes, I want to come back to, because I said I would and I wanted to, I want to come back to what you said a minute ago, because I think it's a crucial thing. You know, when you start uh, describing this internal observer, it's really easy, maybe I'm being confessional here, but I think it's true of human nature. It's easy for that to be perceived as only identifying so-called negative behaviors, anxiety, fear, frustration, whatever. And as you said a moment ago, after you named some of those kind of things, but it can also be joy, it can also be beauty. Right. So tell me more about how you think about that balance or that tension between um, the negative and the positive, whatever terms you want to use, of the inner observer. Uh, are there disciplines or ways of going about exercises that maybe help people to not just do an inventory of sins, we're recording this during Lent, mm -hmm. but, but also uh, of joy and beauty and goodness in the world and in their life? Well, one of the things that is helpful um, is the process can be of using the inner observer and looking inside can be uh, painful and alarming. It is helpful to have a companion, and you might say an enlightened companion, such as a, a counselor, therapist, pastor, uh, perceptive friend. Spiritual director. Spiritual director, that's right. As a part of the process, to a, as someone who us, accompanies us on the journey. Mm -hmm. That's really what a, a benevolent parent would do is accompany a child on the uh, growth process. Also along with that, it's helpful to have a trusted support group of other people who are aware that they are on the journey also so that you can compare notes mm -hmm. and most people in those groups say, oh, well, we're all human after all. Uh, there are no perfect people and so forth. And so that support is a big help. Now, one of the things is it's usually going to be either the mentor or the guide or members of the support group who can highlight the joys. They may see the joys and the blessings even before we do. Mm -hmm. And having that support and uh, that encouragement, and then when we finally recognize the blessings, you've got somebody to share them with, uh -huh. and that reinforces them. Right. Uh, the journey alone is a tough one. Right, right.
Well, I don't know what happened. I can't, apparently we had a technical difficulty and somehow I cut off George. George, my apologies. I wanted to thank you for being on here and, and if we hadn't been cut off, I know George was thanking me. Uh, the recording session went well, but for some reason I goofed up. So my apologies to George. And with that, we'll just move into Ask a Scholar. Today's question for Ask a Scholar comes from a young man who grew up in another part of the world that is predominantly Muslim. Over lunch, he recently asked me, so Mike, why do some traditions drink and others don't? Well, that's a great question, and we should note right away that the use of the word traditions is an important one. It can be used to speak of world religions like the three Abrahamic faiths and others, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, the three Abrahamic faiths. Those are traditions, but Within Christianity, it can also be used to refer to different denominations like Disciples of Christ, United Methodist, Presbyterian, etc. But traditions can also be used in everyday language to refer to customs and practices that we pass along from one generation to another. And I think in this case, all three of these uses are helpful in addressing the question why some traditions drink alcohol and others don't. Islam is opposed, if you don't know, to all uses of alcohol, whereas within Judaism and Christianity, alcohol actually plays an important role. In both testaments, wine is specifically referred to as a part of the faith. For example, in the First Testament, the prophet Isaiah can describe the coming of the Messiah or end of days in terms of a lavish banquet with choice meats and fine wines. And in the Second Testament, Jesus tells us to remember him in the eating of bread and drinking of wine. We are actually told that here is a way to remember him, which includes drinking of wine. These are different ways of being in the world, enjoying such things or not. And within various Christian traditions or denominations, this would be true. Some traditions, for instance, were part of the temperance movement here in the States, and they still discourage imbibing in alcohol. They note, for instance, how a person can become drunk and do all sorts of damage to their lives, their families, etc. And, of course, that is possible. A lot of people don't know, but in the earliest days of the Jesus movement, after his resurrection, his followers gathered most every night of the week at dinner parties that featured alcohol, but there was also a host who, besides caring for the guests and welcoming them, was to make sure no one got drunk and out of hand. One way that I think about alcohol today is with a little parable from the life of Jesus and his cousin John the Baptizer. And you may have heard me say this before. John the Baptizer withdrew from society, living on an extreme diet of locusts and honey, whereas Jesus feasted with Pharisees and tax collectors. John had a hard time with that. It was one of the reasons he wasn't totally sure that Jesus was the one to come. So it's not so much that one of those lifestyles is better. They are what I would call different traditions, whether religiously or culturally. If you have a question for Ask a Scholar, I invite you to email it to me. My address is mikeg at cccc.org. 
And again, I want to thank my good friend George Gordon for being with us today. And until next time, thanks for joining us on Heart and Mind.